Ladies and gentlemen, um, my name is Brendan Mycock, um, President of the Athletics Union. Hang on. Um, and it's my pleasure to be here today on behalf of the LSE uh, to welcome you all to the speech by Brian Moore. Um, may I remind you at the start that this should be recorded, so you can play it back on a podcast um, and details will be placed on the LSE events website. Um, and for those Twitter goers out there, um, if you want to tweet or say anything about today, the hashtag is hash LSE more. Okay, so the purpose of this evening, so the purpose of this evening uh, is to welcome Brian to the LSE. Uh, he was born in Nottingham, went on to, born in Birmingham, sorry, went on to the great city of Nottingham to study law. And it was here playing for Nottingham RFC where he made his name as a rugby player. He then went on to play for England and both the British and Irish Lions. In total, he made 64 caps for England. He played in three Rugby World Cups and won the Grand Slam in 1991, 1992 and 1995. And in this period, he was also voted Rugby Player of the Year. However, this wasn't enough for Brian. After becoming a trained solicitor and rugby legend, he then turned his attention to a media career. He regularly writes a column for the Daily Telegraph, and I'm sure you're all aware he is a passionate commentator for the BBC on big international matches. And if you don't believe me, go onto YouTube and type in Brian Moore loses it. <laughs> His brutally honest and double award-winning autobiography, Beware of the Dog, was released in 2010, and was followed by The Thoughts of Chairman Moore, Volume 1. Published last Christmas, which brings us nicely to why we are here this evening, ladies and gentlemen. The talk is titled The Wit and Wisdom of Brian Moore, and it follows the release of his new book, More Thoughts from Chairman Moore. As usual, after the lecture, there will be an opportunity for you to buy the book and get it signed by the man himself. But for now, can you all join me in welcoming the pit bull of English rugby, Mr. Brian Moore. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Um, when I was at university, um, well, I can't really remember lecture theatres like this because I didn't attend my law lectures uh, very often. Um, I was actually, just a quick background, I'll have a quick background check and I'll uh, chat to you a little bit about what I've been doing, etc., etc. Um, I'm actually uh, from Halifax. I was raised in Halifax. Can I have hands up? Has anyone ever been to Halifax? I bet you've only been once, haven't you? <laughs> yeah, um, I was trying to think of a, a little homily that I could uh, use to describe Halifax to those people who haven't been there, the fortune of being there. So I can do it no better than this. If, if in Halifax, this is the sort of place Halifax is like, if you went out as a man and you had a particularly successful night with one of the uh, Halifax ladies and she invited you home to meet a father and a brother, there's a high probability you'd only meet one person, all right? <laughs> That is what Halifax is like. Um, and I was brought up, well, I actually was, no, I was dragged up, actually, on a council estate called Illingworth in Halifax. Now, <laughs> Illingworth is a, uh, is, a, is a bit of a rough place. Um, and uh, I went home to see my mum still lives there, actually. And I went home to see her a few months ago. And I was driving down Rawley, where, where she lives, and I saw a big sign in one of the, 
in one of the uh, windows saying, Happy 30th birthday, Grandma. <laughs> That's what Illingworth is like. Uh, now, I know it doesn't look like it, but I was educated in Halifax. Uh, to the extent to which I got to take and pass the Oxbridge entrance exam. Now, my, my school didn't have an Oxbridge tradition and didn't understand that trying to send me to St John's College, Oxford, to do politics, philosophy and economics was not a good idea because it's a very academic college. And uh, whilst I passed the uh, written part of the exam, I knew after the first question that I wasn't going to do PPE at St John's because the tutor sat me down and he said, can you consider this philosophical conundrum and then comment? I said, fine. And then he said to me, right, he said, uh, if God is omnipotent, can he create a rock that he cannot lift? Now, I was sat there thinking, first of all, I'm from Halifax, and secondly, I used to play in the front row, and I thought, yeah, I just thought it was a really unfair question. And I, and I did, so I didn't get in to do that. I did a, I did a joint honours degree in plagiarism and photocopying at Nottingham. Um, <laughs> which, to, fair to me, I was very good at that. Um, I, uh, it, it was in law, um, and uh, again, I know it doesn't look like it, but I was a, a qualified lawyer. I, I practiced for 17 years around uh, this part of town as well and uh, people who say me, you know you must have a, a font of courtroom stories with which to regale us and whatever and I say no actually because law is really boring and uh, a monkey could be a lawyer and uh, the only th I, I do remember the only time I do remember being in the Nottingham Guildhall Magistrates Court on a Saturday morning now I didn't know that five years later I'll be there as a defendant but we'll draw a discreet veil over that um, <laughs> And um, one of my colleagues had the temerity to make a bail application against the senior CPS lawyer called Graham Roberts, who was a well-known wit, dry wit. And um, when he'd made his application, Graham Roberts stood up, and I'll never forget this. He addressed the three um, magistrates, and he said, uh, Your Worships, he said, um, if you are seriously considering giving this man his liberty at this point, could I uh, be allowed to make a few points, please? Now, nicking cars to policemen and people in the trade is called taking without the owner's consent or in a shortened vernacular is called twalking that's Nicky Cars and he, Graham Roberts stood up and he said can I just point out that this man was on bail for twalking before he was arrested for twalking having been seen repeatedly twalking in various car parks around the town if you look at his antecedents you will see that he's been to prison for twalking so have several of his family you could say he comes from a line of serial talkers, he said. Uh, and he said, uh, he said, but if you are minded against all my exhortations to grant this man his liberty at this particular point, then I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to demand a five-minute adjournment. And the chairman of the bench looked down at him and said, why is that, Mr. Roberts? And he said, well, to be honest, he said, I want to go and move my car. <laughs> I stopped being a lawyer about five years ago because I, I developed conscience and, um, <laughs> and, I, and I had to stop, even though it was very well paid. Um, and I do various things now. I, I, I write for the Telegraph. Uh, and the Telegraph's a really odd paper in this sense that people actually read everything you write properly. They don't skim read it. And, and this encourages all sorts of odd letters um, that I get. Uh, I got a letter a couple of months ago saying, Dear Mr Moore, uh, read your article of so-and-so, 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 
I think you will find in the uh, last sentence of the fifth paragraph that you used a split infinitive. <laughs> I wrote back and said, I think you'll find I fucking didn't, actually. Um, <laughs> I used, I, for four years, I was the wine correspondent for the Sun. Now, <laughs> now that always gets a laugh, but then I say, well, you know, who's a fool? Because I used to get free wine every week and, uh, to taste, and uh, of course I got fewer, I get fewer, I got fewer letters from Sun readers, um, obviously, um, which if you think about it, is an oxymoron, actually, uh, along with French resistance. Um, <laughs> And Scottish amicable, and uh, <laughs> or if you're in IT, Microsoft Works, that's a good one. Yeah. Or if you like football, Dennis Wise. That's one. Um, yeah, but the, well, I did occasionally get one. I, I once got a letter from a Sunreader asking me to recommend different wines as to the different flavour Christie liked. <laughs> <laughs> And I tell you what, the thing is, the th great thing about this was, um, or what I would do is I'd write to the uh, various high street chains and what have you and say, this is what I'm going to be writing about in the next four weeks. If you want to send any samples, and please do. And um, I learned to be quite specific after a while and say things like um, Southeast Australian Cabernet Sauvignons, because the first time I said Australian red, and this is not an exaggeration. I got 30 cases of wine in two days. Um, and this sounds great, doesn't it? But then if it comes in every week, it has to give me some bloody nuisance. And uh, <laughs> because the thing is, you can't taste them all and drink them. Because, you know, you've got, if you start at the beginning of the day and so on. So I just used to, to spit them out. But then it was a waste because there were other corks and things like that. Couldn't use them again. So I, I, I started to, to give them, eventually, you know, I give them, I was very popular in my street eventually because I used to give them to neighbours. Um, but the first time I tried to, this is what the British are like, this is what the English are like. The first time I tried to give a free case of wine to someone, to a next door neighbour, I knocked on his door and said, we'd like a free case, and he, and he said, why, what's wrong with it? <laughs> I said, no, there's nothing, nothing wrong with it. And he said, have you got a planning application in? <laughs> I, said, I said, no, no, no. And I gave him the wine, and he took it and shut the door like this. You'd think I'd come round and said, "Can I bug your dog?" I mean, it's really good. I, I also do. Um, I do some uh, uh, commentary for the BBC, and uh, people. Most people think commentary is really easy, and uh, I could do a good, a better job. And may, I don't know, maybe maybe some of you could or, or couldn't. The only thing I would say in my defence is that uh, when I'm speaking. And when I have my headphones on, I have three people talking at the same time. So I have the referee, because he's mic'd up as well. I have the producer. And I have what's called the VT people, or the replay people. And they're all talking at the same time. I could turn them off, but I, I don't, because I need to listen to them, to, to what's going on, and what's coming up on the pictures, etc., etc., etc. And actually, the, the skill of, of listening, thinking, and talking at the same time is one that takes a while to get used to. And I... I tried quite hard, but in my relatively short BBC career, I've had uh, three verbal warnings and a written warning. Um, and <laughs> and uh, things like this. The, the first verbal warning I got was, was in a, it was in an Edinburgh Reavers game. And the number eight for the Reavers was a policeman, and the ref, former policeman rather, and the referee was a policeman. And the number eight got tackled about sh four yards short of the line. 
and still held it proceeded to crawl and put the ball down now you don't need to know the that was a penalty without doubt it was a definite penalty but the referee gave a try and uh, Eddie Butler turned to me and said why, why do you think he gave that and I said well Eddie they're probably both Masons Well, just a joke, or so I, or so I thought. <laughs> because on the Tuesday, because it's practically then, uh, a female lawyer from the legal department rang me up and said, Russell Jones and Walker, the Federation of Solicitors, have issued a letter before action about this, claiming it's defamatory, and they want an apology and damages and costs, and uh, we were going to apologise, but we can't do that without your uh, agreement. So, I, And I said, well, do you mind if I make a few points? Because I was practising then. And they said, well, I've done defamation as well, I said. And uh, can I just tell you, first of all, they were wrong. It wasn't a try. I said, secondly, it's not libelous to be called a mason anyway. And I said, thirdly, and I don't blame you, but I do know this. I know that that firm gets £3 million a year, every year, from the Police Federation um, uh, to, to do all sorts of cases that it's got no faith in. This is one, and I'm not uh, apologising. I'm going to draft my own response, and you can send it on my behalf. And I sent it across by email. And by the Friday, I hadn't heard anything back. So I rang her up again. I said, did you hear anything from Russell Jones and Walker? And she said, no. I said, you did send my letter, didn't you? And she said, we sent an amended version of your letter. Um, <laughs> she was quite good, actually, because she said, she said, lawyer to lawyer, Brian, we both know fuck isn't a legal word, all right? I got into trouble for making the French resistance joke in a game. I just thought it was funny, but no one else did. Um, <laughs> I also, I, I, I got into trouble for, for this, this little bit, um, and I felt a bit aggrieved actually, because it was an England-France game, and um, the French flanker, who's got a great name, he's called Remy Martin, what a brilliant name that is, Remy Martin, and he got unceremoniously rooked out of the back on the English line, and I, I felt a bit aggrieved, because I did say, right, I said, you know, you're not allowed to do that, that's a definite penalty, and then I added, but then again, he, he was on the wrong side, and he, he frankly deserved it really, and... Uh, I would probably got away with that, but then for some reason I found myself saying, in any way, it's French and I don't care. Um, so, <laughs> so. The letters of complaint the BBC got for that um, alleged everything of me, from, from, things like the, from, th from uh, allegations that I encouraged violence to allegations that I, you know, I was racist. And I, I said, it, you can't be racist just to hate the French, surely, I said. <laughs> I said, everyone hates the French. I said, it's a natural order. No, no, right. Um, and uh, very quickly, can I, can I just tell you about my, my written warning? It was a bit of that. It was a Calcutta Cup game, and um, there was a bit of a melee, and one of the Scottish centres ran in, and he delivered the most ineffectual fo footballer's attempt at a punch. That I, when, when I was asked about it, I described it as a gay slap. And... <laughs> I understand when I said that the, the complaints board went white and uh, I, uh, so I, I, got, I got a written warning for that because of the way the BBC is. I actually was in the last, with the, with the World Cup just gone, I worked for TalkSport um, uh, commentating and radio commentary. I found it was very interesting actually because the difference is marked and it's easier and harder in different ways. The easier bit about radio is that you don't have to decide when not to say anything because there are no pictures. So obviously you just have to talk because people have no uh, other means of getting any communication. The other difficult side of it is that you have to carry on talking and keep talking. Um, 
and, and fill all the space. Um, it was interesting uh, working for TalkSport because it's a very different organisation from the BBC. Um, the guidelines are, are, are very different. And I, actually, in the end, I, sort of, I, I really preferred radio, I think, uh, in the end. Um, you're here, I'm here, and, and, and whatever. I, uh, I, I've done three books now, and I suppose I might qualify as an author. And I, uh, the first, I, it's very strange, because I've been invited to literary festivals, the Hay Festival and, and things like that. And I, and I never realised how big the Hay Festival is until I was sat next to very, very well-known authors uh, and, and things like that. And, and, and they were discussing their, the technicalities of writing and whatever, and I... <coughs> was nonplussed really I said well I just I write uh, and I don't really know about the technicalities but I I am quite proud of the fact that the, it was my first and my autobiography it was the only book to only one of two books ever to win the William Hill Sports Book of the Year and uh, the British Awards uh, Sports Book of the Year which uh, was quite uh, was quite nice it, 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 it's a very I guess I never set out to, to to be a writer in any respect at all and one of the difficulties I had was that even though um, I was used to, um, you know, doing fiction because I was a lawyer, um, it was a, it was a, a difficult process to stop myself from being very formal. And uh, the the the, auto, the the autobiography I did one a long time ago, which was a, uh, a ghost written uh, one with Stephen Jones of the Sunday Times, and it was about sort of eighty percent of of what I wanted, and it was never going to be any more because it's impossible for a third party to actually write as you would and it's impossible for you to, to, to do that but I, I decided to do a second one because it became obvious after sort of 15 years in retirement that, and I was looking back on, on various bits and pieces that um, I'd started to identify uh, various traits in my life and this was all kicked off by a visit to the Child Online Protection Agency uh, in uh, Vauxhall Bridge Road which is a world leading authority on the um, detection and prosecution of online child abuse images. Tracy Edwards, the yachtswoman, uh, who's a friend of mine, uh, asked me to help her with a project where they were trying to get some money for the International Youth Conference and she was having a hard time raising the amount of money that they wanted in sponsorship. Now all they wanted was 240,000 right? and you've got to remember this, this was in the boom times of the late um, 2000 uh, noughties, right? This was in the boom time. This, is the, the, this was one of the years when I know that, um, for example, the RBS spent two million pounds taking four of their clients to Monaco. Um, we went to RBS to ask them for 40 grand and uh, our proposal was backed by their sponsorship um, advisor who was a friend of mine from school. It was backed by their head of personal banking. Uh, the RBS brand manager um, looked at the proposal, threw it down and said, not really us, actually, sorry. Um, at which point, um, I said to him, I'll tell you what, tell you what, you carry on spending money on uh, going to Monaco and we and other people <coughs> will carry on protecting your children. Is that all right? Um, to we, I find it, uh, the difficulty I found was this. I came out of SEOP and events that I thought had been buried and I buried and dealt with successfully, um, came back to me with a vengeance because when I was nine, I was uh, sexually abused by a family friend, a teacher, um, and a church goer. I dealt with it 
in a way which was a protection mechanism, which was to stamp down any thought about what had happened. But when I visited SEOP, the rest of it just came flooding back, and I, it took me, I sat on a wall just down the road, and I just sobbed for about half an hour. And at that point, it was from that point in the counselling after that that I came to have some understanding as to why and what had happened to me in my life. And it therefore seemed to me to, to make sense to write an autobiography thematically rather than chronologically, which I did. Um, I thought long and hard about whether or not to introduce that into the book for this reason. And this didn't happen a lot, but it did happen. I was well aware that if I put that in, there would be certain allegations from some people that I put this in as a way of sensationalising a book to sell copy. Now, there are lots of things I could put in a book. I would only have to tell the truth about what went on our tours to uh, sensationalise a book. There'd be a lot of divorces, but, um, <laughs> you know, I, without, uh, without doing that. And I put it in because, in the end, I thought it had to go in because it would make sense when I was talking about some of the madder thoughts and some of the madder actions and some of the way in which I played and the way in which I dealt with things, if I didn't uh, give people an insight into why the vehemence and why the things uh, were as they were. So that went in. Um, I don't deserve any credit for this because I didn't do it for this reason, but the most pleasing aspect of the success of the book and the publicity surrounding it was this, was that I, if up to about 100 people had bothered to track me down either through the telegraph or through email or whatever uh, and wrote to me quite mo a lot of very moving stories um, to say that a similar thing had happened to them and that because of the publicity surrounding it or reading the book they'd found the wherewithal to tell someone else for the first time now if 100 people bothered to get in touch with me the, the actual number who didn't but did something would be far higher and for that you know I, uh, I, I you know I, I am that, that's the most pleasing aspect of it I I'm not qualified to make any hard and fast recommendations or whatever all I would say and I developed uh, an understanding of this I think through various interviews and including one for RTE when a woman came on I was quite moving with this A woman came on and she said um, that she had kept her secret, in particular, for 67 years. And that uh, because of hearing this programme, she'd gone and told someone for the first time. And, and I thought, well, I'm, I was just very pleased to be able to be the catalyst after such a long time. And I, I think it's this, if there may be people here, there may not be people, you may know people, I would just say this. If, if you or they can find the wherewithal, for whatever reason, to tell another person, from that point onwards, you, they, will never be alone. You might still be lonely, but there's a very big difference. And if you can do that, that is the start of a journey which, from which point you will get, start to get better. It won't be easy, but it will be better than the situation you're in because Wrongly, I thought that because I'd managed to put it very firmly to the bottom of my mind and my psyche, that it had been dealt with. And it hadn't, obviously. It was having a, a very corrosive and corrupting effect in a very, very 
in a very, very virulent and marked way, but I didn't know what it was. I didn't know why I was so angry. I didn't know why, you know, um, I would do things, etc., etc. Um, so that was a background to that. I, I was, I was lucky actually with a with a Telegraph to uh, to be able to write on that and, and other sports. And uh, when I first started writing about other sports, especially football, um, people used to make comments like, "I think you've had too many bangs on the head, mate." Uh, <laughs> And, you know, what do you know about football? And I say, well, I've watched a lot, just like you, actually. Um, because I played football before I ever played rugby. I've carried on being a football fan. Uh, and I just said, well, the, the difference between you and I is I think I can look at it slightly more objectively. I really love football. I think it's a great game. It's not until you see the Premiership players play live that you realise just how skillful they are, actually, and how little time they have on the ball and how quick the game is. But I... <laughs> But there are still things... I don't understand football in certain ways. There's, a, there's an anti-intellectualism in football, which, which they seem determined to uh, maintain at all costs. I still hear um, professional players saying, old professional players saying, you know, the trouble is nowadays they don't clean boots anymore. I said, and what will that... That'll teach them to clean boots, won't it? And then bully other people like you used to do. And, um, you know, what, what if you made them do some exams? What if you made them learn? Um, what if you made them study like the Australian Institute of Sport where, funnily enough, they recognised a long time ago that if you have people who are better developed educationally, all of a sudden, funnily enough, they become better players because they can be coached easier, they become better teammates, they become better leaders. And um, I don't know why a lot of the Premiership football clubs, because they've been going on and on, I don't know if you know about this, but they've been talking about the number of hours of contact that children get between, say, 8 and 16, the number of hours with coaches, the number of hours with a football earlier, and uh, the, the average time that English youngsters are spending is half, maybe a third, of what Spain and other countries are doing. Um, and I would say, well, you know, with, the, with this government's initiative about buying your own schools, I don't see why you don't all buy your own schools, not least because you get grants for it, but then you can have the kids you can educate them properly, you can have all the game time you want, and you can, I don't see a downside to it. But um, I also don't understand, uh, you know, I, I, this the maddening things in football, I don't understand. You, if you have an idea from outside football, and you, and you, um, you, you give it, the initial response isn't, oh, well, let's see what the merits of that are, maybe we could do this, maybe we could do that. What they say is, straight away they say, no, it won't work, it won't work if we don't do that in football. Things like, why do they have a stop clock? You know, it's 90 minutes, the referee says on, off, it gets to 90 and it finishes. And then you don't have Arsene Wenger and Alex Ferguson say, was it three minutes? Was it five minutes? If it was three minutes, does that mean it's 2.59 or does it mean it's 3.59? Why is he done this? So just have a stop clock. And, but there's a, there's a form of reasoning also that they do, which is exaggeration. So. If you, so they say things like, well, you can still have a mistake with a stop clock. I said, yes, but if you have a mistake, at least both teams can see it, and they know it's there. Um, I, I don't know, I've had arguments about technology in football, and some people do want it, some people don't want it, some people... Uh, uh, but the arguments are quite strange, because they say things like, well, they have this, uh, what I call, um, where will it all end argument. Well, if you, if you introduce uh, technology, even Michelle Platini, head of UEFA, if you have technology, he said, you might as well be playing PlayStation, which is patently, nonsensically idiotic. And then you have arguments like this. Say, well, where will it all end? You, you might as well review every decision. I said, it will end where you want it to end and where you decide it should end. 
Because it's not, it's an inert technology. It does what you don't, you want it to do, and, and no more. It's not like a Cyberdyne system in Terminator, it suddenly takes <laughs> away. And, and he said, said, you know, and they say, you'll have things, you'll have arguments like, you can't have sighting, you can't have sighting for diving in the box. So why not? Simply, well, because, 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 you can look at some uh, videos and you, a thousand times and you still can't tell whether they've dived. And I say, yeah. And on that occasion, he gets away with it. But remember this, he doesn't know when he dives in the box where the cameras are and what angles they're at. So if he's lucky enough to, to get, you know, not to get caught and it's not definitive, he gets away with it. But remember that the threat is there all the time. And I said, anyway, if you think about that logic, you know, you can't be certain in every case. I said, the police wouldn't use forensic evidence because not definitive. In fact, they wouldn't investigate murders, would they? Because you can't catch everyone. So um, I said, I say, it's not until you move this, this logic from, 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 from football onto something sensible that you realise how ludicrous it is. Um, and I, I, you say, well, we're actually trying to help make the game better because it, you know, it's a great game anyway with a, a little bit uh, of application, it could be a lot better. It, it would help a, an awful lot if Seth Blatter wasn't in charge um, <laughs> and other people. Um, it's it's uh, amazing how FIFA have done this. They've now effectively removed the only two organs for pressure for really radical change. They have a rule, and I understand this rule, and it's right if it's applied properly, which is the non-government interference in football rule. And that's to stop people like Kim John Eel picking his team and, you know, and shooting them when they don't do well and things like that. Um, it's not supposed to be used for the reason why FIFA have used it in the past, which was when the Nigerian government investigated, started to investigate the Nigerian FA because it was so corrupt. And then we're told, right, Nigeria are now out of world football, so they back down. So they effectively, through that rule, neutered any political interference. The only other organ that had the power to really agitate properly for change was the press. And we all saw what happened <laughs> to England's bid when the press started asking difficult questions. So they've now managed to do that. And I don't see, unfortunately, at the top level, how the... Um, momentum for change is going to come because there isn't and it's, it's Blatter is now saying um, well we're going to get to the bottom of this we're going to do that but how many people here believe that without the Sunday Times um, exposes that FIFA would now be going through any sort of exercise uh, <laughs> into its corruption because it, it, I just made this uh, uh, sort of comparison I said what it is it's like asking M MPs now whether or not their expenses uh, should be regulated because if you'd asked them five years ago before they'd been caught there would have been uh, no cry for it at all um, and it's only because of that pressure that it's come so that's difficult and you seem to spend uh, when I'm riding that spot it's actually difficult sometimes I've got to stop and say try not to try not to write every piece as a criticism but the, the problem is there are so many fuck ups that you that at the end of the day it's very difficult because when you're dealing with the LTA and, and, and the RFU who are, who are just absolutely dysfunctional um, at the moment, then it, it's very difficult not to stand back and, and, and say things. Um, I don't want necessarily to do, to do that all the time, but then again, if the, if the evidence is there. The one or two things actually that I, I, you can do, and I don't think the, the press n n do nearly enough of it, um, 
a couple of years back I started asking for well, my intention was to do this was to try and get behind some of the bureaucracy that was stopping sports clubs you know developing their grounds and things like this and uh, so I asked for people to write in and tell me about difficulties they were having you know where crude red tape was stopping them going forward and what I actually got was a, a raft of uh, similar um, similar complaints which were coming about what became known as the rain tax now, what this was, was a proposal that had been generated by Offwat itself, who was supposedly the Consumer Council, who was supposedly the, the Consumers Council. Uh, and they had decided that um, the way in which um, people were being charged for their drainage rights was unfair, because what they were saying was, they were saying that um, because it was based on rateable value, a small shop in the middle of town, which was a high rateable value, notwithstanding the fact that it had a, a roof space of X, was paying more than an out-of-town store, um, which was on a low rateable value, which had a huge service area, which was, you know, and, they were, and so there was cross-subsidy. And they decided to um, construe a piece of legislation which said, I'm sorry to boy, but it's important, which said there must be no undue preference when you're doing charges. And they took that to mean there could be no cross-subsidy of these sorts. So what they said was, rather than rateable value, the energy companies or the, 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 the water companies could then charge on the basis of, of square footage. And of course, when it comes to sports rounds, sports rounds are big. So sports clubs were getting bills increases of the highest one I saw was 3,900% increase in their water bill. People were getting, the, and these are small clubs that were volunteer run for kids, for pensioners, for everyone. These were getting bills that had gone up from, say, £360 to like £4,000, £5,000 a year. In one case, up to £13,000. And, we and, and the church had the same problems, and the scouts and all these organisations. And um, so we began lobbying. And I got into this debate about a year after it started. And I didn't understand that the church had been trying to do this a normal, orderly way through their uh, influence in the House of Lords and so on. And they'd be getting nowhere. And um, so I just decided to, be, to, to shout uh, a lot. And uh, it was interesting because I said, I understand that and it shouldn't be like this, but it's like this with MPs. You've got to remember this. They've got a massive post bag every week of all sorts of competing causes. What you've got to do is push this up their list of inconvenience to as far up so they can't not deal with it. So I sent 45 um, emails out to all the constituents in the northwest, because the biggest villain in all this was a company called United Utilities, who'd been doing these things. And I wrote to them saying, this is a problem, one of it. I got, I got two responses from the MPs, two. One of them which said, um, I think you will find that I do not have to deal with you as you are not a constituent of mine. Um, if and when you do become a constituent of mine, um, I may consider dealing with your inquiry. I wrote back saying, what's the... Okay. Um, <laughs> when I uh, get to tell the story of this, I said, I'm going to publish this email. And um, why is it then that several of your constituents have been writing to me saying things like, our MP is fucking useless? Um, <laughs> so what we, we... I remember having a, a meeting with Hugh Arankadavis, who was a Minister of State, with Mike Gatting, um, in Whitehall where Mike um, was very conciliatory and I shouted at him for about an hour and uh, 
I was just trying to say, actually, the problem was this, was that Off Water had made the decision, the Consumer Council for Water was another quango, and DEFRA were the government department. I said to DEFRA, your responsibility. They said no, it's uh, Off Watts. Off Watts said no, it's DEFRA's. They both said it was Consumer Council Water. Everyone pointed a different direction. And in the end, me and everyone else were left in the middle. The Minister said, we're not allowed to interfere because this is a quasi-autonomous uh, body, and if we're seen to interfere, then uh, it's not democratic. I said, well, who sacks these people? They said, well, we do. Right. So who regulates their behaviour? Well, we do notionally, he said, but not practically. Well, no, not practically. Well, who does then? Uh, well, well, nobody then. Well, well, no, not nobody. The government retains the ultimate responsibility. I said, until you have to do something, you mean? <laughs> Well, well, it's not quite like that. I said, well, what is it like then? And I went on and on. And in the end, I was invited to the uh, Portcullis House. And we got the chairman of, uh, of Offwood there, Sir Philip Green. And um, it was the first time he and 45 MPs had been there. And, uh, and basically, we, we just put these point after point after point to him. And in the end, he simply became more and more obstructive. To the point which, when I was addressing him, he actually looked away. Turned his back, and I, and I and at this point, I, I'm, I'm afraid to say, I just lost it. Uh, <laughs> but I thought to myself, wait a minute, you know, you're a regulatory body, you're for consumers, and you can't be bothered to listen. And this is the problem. So um, we got the law changed in the end, um, and it saved people thousands and thousands of pounds, which they shouldn't have had to pay in the first place. Um, that's an example of something you can do, uh, and something that's. Uh, that is useful. There are lots of, to me, it would help actually if, if the media we concentrated on serious or, or more relevant stories rather than, to me, what is, is not a, a point. I've had arguments about role models ad infinitum, and I've said what I don't understand is why people attribute this to sports people um, in a way that they don't to rock stars or to celebrity. X factors or to, to actors or, or, or anyone else, you're assumed to be a role model. And the difficulty is for a sportsman, I say, is this, is that you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. Because if I'd said or anyone else said, I'm sorry, um, I'm, I'm not going to present the prizes at Cobham under 12s on Sunday because I don't want to be held up and seen photographed with uh, youngsters in case something goes wrong and then I'm held up to be a role model and then they'll use it against me because they'll say, and last week he was, he was with the under-12s and that's how corrupting this influence has been. Because if I refuse to do that, I would get headlines like, who does he think he is? He's too big to go and do that. And so that's a difficult thing. And I, I'm also waiting to, for people to produce this. When people say... Um, um, there'll be thousands of kids look up to, 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 to these people. I say, yeah, but what for? And the, I, I've, ne I've, yet to I've yet to find anyone to, to, to produce a, a nine-year-old child who's come up and said, the reason I'm very uh, disappointed in John Terry is that he said a terrible example of marital fidelity, and I was hoping that... Uh, <laughs> And I was hoping when I grew up that he would lead the way for me morally. Um, <laughs> No, they're disappointed because he's Chelsea captain and it might be dropped, um, which is about as far as it goes. Um, ladies and gentlemen, I've spoken for 40 minutes now, or rambled on. Um, it's time, if you want, you don't have to, to, to ask any questions you want. Feel free to, to ask anything you want. Uh, in return, I'll feel free to answer as I want. But uh, <laughs> Yes, sir.
Is there any cure for... Look, let me get this out of the way. I like Eddie Butler, right? I only argue... Eddie Butler is my commentator, co-commentator on the BBC. I only argue with Eddie when he's wrong, which is why it's quite a lot. But um, uh, It's funny with Eddie because you ask English viewers why they don't like him and they say, well, because he's, he's biased towards Wales. And um, the thing is, when you go to Wales, they don't like him either. Uh, <laughs> you know, but you know why? Because they say he's biased towards England, which he can't be both, can he? And I say, I say to the Welsh, I say, that's not true, is it? You see, your problem is that you've never forgiven him for being educated. Actually. That's what it is. Um, for going to Cambridge and just living in Monmouth, which is only just in Wales. And uh, so, so, no, I mean, Eddie's problem is this. Eddie um, has had to bear the cross of the fact that he's not Bill McLaren, you know. Um, and Bill, but I, I say to people, look, Bill McLaren wasn't the Bill McLaren when he started. And you've got to remember this. If you're anyone, it could be anyone in this room, actually, if your voice was synonymous with a sport for 40 years because the BBC had rights over that prolonged period because there wasn't a competitor in commercial TV and there wasn't satellite TV, so your voice was the voice of Wimbledon or, or, or rugby or whatever, your voice would be the voice that everyone remembered. And I tell you this, what, what happens, there's a, there's a process, um, and I don't know exactly how far it comes in, but it comes at this point. The time at which a commentator gets well enough known and sufficiently in the public consciousness for them to be t mimicked by, as was Mike Yorwood, then Rory Bremner, you know, etc., etc. At that point, they seem to almost be beatified, to a point because they become almost part of a national consciousness and a bit of a bit of uh, fun, and people don't don't ridicule them, but but they see their they then see their mistakes as part of a of an overall thing. You know, it doesn't matter; it's harmless. It's funny. Murray Walker, I mean, who, who if you if you analyse Murray Walker's stuff. You know, when he used to commentate with James Hunt, I don't know if you ever remember this, and James Hunt used to tell him virtually every, every, every lap that he'd made a mistake. Um, but Murray Walker is such a good guy, and he's been around for so long, and has now got to this stage, that people love, love him just, just to, to listen to him. It doesn't matter what he says, in the same way that, you know, that people love Bill, accepting always that Bill was actually a genius as well. Which, but Eddie suffers from the fact that he's, he's not been able to take over that mantle and, and but then I would say well how would anyone and how would he yes so, sorry can we wait until the microphone gets to you um, yeah I, I wondered uh, um, whether you thought media coverage of sports teams on tour was uh, had a positive impact on the sports teams performance or otherwise what could you be referring to um, <laughs> just I'd leave that to you yeah, I've had this a while. Actually, I might say to players, look, can I just show you something? I say, this sounds a bit trite, but believe me, it's not. I said, the relationship between you and the, and the public has changed forever because of this. It's because when I was around, we didn't have these. And we certainly, or, or when, they, when I did, when we did, they certainly didn't have a five megapixels camera on it like this has got, or a two, two and a half uh, minute video that I could download onto YouTube or Twitter and send immediately I'd done it. And that, for, it used to be, it would be my word against yours. Um, and that's a lot better evidentially than someone showing you a big video of what you've been doing, dwarf throwing in a bar in Queenstown. And, um, and so, you know, I say, I'm sorry, but that's the way it is. And, and if you say to me, oh, in your day, I said, well, we're not talking about my day. We're talking about your day. 
in my day, you know, we didn't get paid. In my day, we did a lot of things. I understand that. Uh, we got away with an awful lot of things. But by the way, uh, you know, the three World Cups I played in, I didn't sign a contract and take a lot of money, but, uh, the, uh, one of which, one of the clauses of which said you've got to behave yourself. So, so actually, as, as I didn't get paid at all, you know, I felt that uh, the odd occasional excess was nothing more than uh, uh, that was coming to me, really. Uh, <laughs> and another thing, by the way, if you point to my... Um, post um, Lions series celebrations which were quite out of order and I don't remember but I was found running against the traffic in the fast lane of the Sydney Harbour Bridge doing aeroplane impressions and I, <laughs> I and I only know this because two journalists who were travelling suddenly saw the cars in front of them swerving out of the way and saw this madman running towards them and suddenly said, so, you know, isn't that, so, yeah, and, they, and it was, they stopped and pulled me in before I was killed, so. Um, and I said, you know, well, the, I said, the difference between you and I is that um, we'd actually won that series and we'd finished. That was the difference. <laughs> Does the coverage, well, the, the fact is this, if you don't understand that you're going to be under intense media scrutiny, then you're foolish. And not only that, they were told about this, because I know the people who do the, uh, the RFU PR, I know that they've been talked to about social media and they've been talked to about other things. They've been talked to about this. They've, they've, the contracts have gone through you know, by their lawyers and so on. They know that the dispute clauses are in there. And the fact is this, if it's unfair and you don't like it, don't go. But if you do go, you sign and you take the money, you can't then complain. Because the time to complain is before or when you've not signed it and then protesting. But if you, you, know, if you don't, Mike Tyndall, you know, his position, who's married to. Now, you may well say that shouldn't have anything to do with it, but, but it does. And, he, and if you're silly enough to, to, to believe that it wouldn't, then, you know, you're naive uh, in, in, in the extreme. And the, the, problem, the problem came with this is actually England, no one would have cared or people would have cared a lot less if they'd been winning and playing really well. You can get away with things if you win and play really well. When the 2011 DVD comes out of this last Rugby World Cup, England will not feature in rugby terms at all. Now for the richest playing nation with the most, with the greatest number of players, that frankly is, all, is a disgrace. You know, we should not be in that position. And, uh, you know, I, there were, there were, I don't know the correlation between on the field and off the field ill-discipline. However, if there is a correlation, I, it would probably, I believe, come as this. If people have actually told you and warned you, don't do this, don't do that when you're out, and you don't listen, I wonder sometimes whether you're listening really when they're talking about team tactics and what you should do there, whether you are actually probably listening properly, or whether I've heard they know this or whatever. You know, um, and I would simply say this, is how is it that, apart from two All Blacks, Zach Guilford, um, and Israel Dagg, who got caught and immediately were carpeted and immediately said sorry. How, how is it that no one else had this? Because don't tell me that the French media didn't follow their players and that the <coughs> Scots and the world, that, that they weren't also <coughs> under scrutiny. Not necessarily quite as much as you, but they were and they managed not to do this. So if you can tell me how <coughs> jumping off a ferry is going to make things better then I'll listen. If you can tell me how being so drunk that you have to be put to bed and you don't 
recollect what you did that night. Is it going to improve your performance? Then I understand that uh, I'll listen. Um, if you can tell me, there's a reason. Look, the management have to have some responsibility because, because at the end of the day, they make the decision to treat people like adults or not. But when they're palpably not being behaving like adults, what they can't do, which is what they did do, was say, try and brush over it in public and say, "Oh, rugby player drinks, shocker," you know, is is to is to say actually, this is wrong. You boys, you know, all the team activities are stopped. Don't look at me. Look at these people. These are people let you down. Then the pressure comes internally. <coughs> what you can't do is 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 front up outwards and say it doesn't matter, etc., etc. Because at the end of the day, perception is a big thing. And whilst the press, I, I actually tried to draw a line in when I was reporting on what they didn't didn't do. And I said, thing, I, my line was this, you know. I don't care if they go bungee jumping or you shot over jets or whatever, because that actually is not injurious to your health. You, you know, it's, <laughs> bungee jumping, whatever you think about it, it's very safe. You know, it's not going to affect them. Either. However, when it comes to being so drunk that you can't remember what you've done, you know, you ask any, um, I doubt whether any of the Olympic athletes will be doing that between heats. You know, um, <laughs> I'll take a wild guess. Um, and so, I would just say, you know, you're either professional or you're not. You either do everything. You're... And, f and what I don't understand is this. You know, they do play an extremely physical sport. But when they battle for four years for the right to be selected to get in a World Cup squad, why fuck around for five weeks? It's only five or six weeks of your life when you've done all this. It doesn't make any sense to me, logically. You've battled so hard. You, be, you know... Um, because, because at the end of the day, you know, you look back, and I say to some of the younger players who are thinking, oh, it's all right, I'm only 22, I've got two more World Cups. Well, I bet you some of those players um, will not play in another World Cup because they'll be injured, or they'll lose form, or they'll be someone better, or they'll um, fall out with the selectors. You know, so the time is now. You can't say, oh, I'll do it in four years' time. How do you know you're going to be around in four years' time? You might not be alive in four years' time. Um, so the time is now, and, and I think the ultimate thing is this for me. When you hear, in veiled terms, Lewis Moody and Johnny Wilkinson coming out and saying, you know, effectively some people thought they were better than they were, didn't have the right attitude, then you understand the perspective. If they're willing to say that and their recent teammates, that to me says a lot. And the final and the decisive point to me is this, is, Look, you may not care what you say to the media, you may not care about uh, the fans, you may not care about the youth development officers who've been actually trying to sell rugby into schools up against football, up against tennis, have been waiting for four years to be able to show kids on TV what you can do with England, and what have they been able to say? Well, you can go dwarf-tossing, ferry-jumping, and get drunk, which is not a great, you know, great thing to a nine-year-old, really. Uh, if you don't care about them, what about your teammates? What about the people who are not doing this and who expect you to be focused, expect you to be giving everything you can, and if, if, if you're a bit bored, then you put up with it because that's your problem, and you, only boring people are bored anyway. So it's up to you. You know, Have you not, in the end, got enough respect for them because they are trying their hardest, they are doing everything right? And if you don't even have that then you've got to question people's, uh, uh, people's attitude. Um, the media, I think actually, they've gone almost, hopefully, 
are the days of people inventing stories, complete invention, because the, the libel laws are, you know, they're, they're much more aggressive now, uh, you know, uh, and, and the con there are contingency fees as well. So the days of, of, of people going out and actually just making things up are probably long gone. So you, to give someone the ability to write about it, you probably have had to done it or do something like it. And if you don't do it, they can't write about it. Yes, lady. Um, you've been remarkably restrained so far in um, giving any opinion on the RFU and their organisation. Um, what would it be your uh, template for how they can sort themselves out? <laughs> Look, the, the problem the RFU have got is it is owned by all the clubs in England, mo the vast majority of which are amateur. They own everything, they own the infrastructure, they own Twicken and Moria. They want to say in how it's run. And you can say, so there are 49 representatives, or depending on which 37 or whichever, and that's too many. You can't run an organisation like that. So the problem is, how do you still give them a bit of a say and reward them for doing the infrastructure and running the county cups and the disciplinary boys um, and then actually run it properly? Well, the, the only way you can do it is have, to me, is have management boards that are, that are paid because the problem you have in a, in a, in a big organisation that represents a professional amateur sport, which is run by amateurs in a wider sense, but the top is professional, is this is that if you inherently get on committees, you get amateurs, they're always able to say, well, look, um, I'm not being paid to do this. You know, who else would do it for, this, you know, for no money? You know, and, and all right, I may be crap, but at least I turn up, you know, um, <laughs> which is a problem. So if you pay someone, you say, it's not, not good enough, off you go. This is a contract. So to me, they need, they need a, a very small management body with, 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 <coughs> one, with maybe three representatives of the whole county structure, two non-execs, pay them all properly, they're no good, out. And then you can see that. And then we won't have the, the problem of people building political empires coming through the thing. I'm not, look, if they want to have the two tickets, you know, uh, Twickenham for in, home internationals as a reward for, for doing whatever they do, fine. But that's a world of difference from actually having a say in what goes on in important things which they don't understand. Um, you've got a problem, obviously you've got a professional... Uh, a game. The problem with the professional game is they want everything, and you've got to be able to trust them to have the wider interests at heart, because they only tangentially understand, and the further it gets on, like the EPL, the English Premier League, they only understand the grassroots in uh, sort of, you know, as an abstract concept. They don't actually accept that if you didn't have the grassroots football, they wouldn't have a football club, because there wouldn't be wider interest, there wouldn't be the players coming through because you can buy them abroad and they've got the money. So, but they have, they, they have to be able to, to focus on that. So it, it's just a concentration. The problem is, with all these things, is how do you get that constitutionally passed? Because to do that, the people who are going to be out of power have got to say yes, because that's the constitution, and there isn't another one. That's the difficulty. You just need a lot fewer old gits around, really. Um, because they, they don't understand, and... Uh, you know, and they and they do work hard in their areas, but reward them in a different way. Don't let them in, don't let them be in charge of anything. Um, as a reward. 
And at the end of the day, what do you say about a body that's managed to find itself in a position where, at one point concurrently, it doesn't have a CEO, it doesn't have an FD, it doesn't have a head of human resources, um, it doesn't have a national uh, elite director or they know what his job is, and doesn't have a coach? And the, the problem, just sorry, but another thing, the problem, the problem is until admin is usually really, you know, when it works, it don't, no one wants to know about it because it's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an admin. The problem is when you don't have people in situ, they can't make appointments. They, at the moment, they haven't got the people, they haven't physically got the people to sign con the contracts long term because Thomas is off, you know. So who, so who do they sign? Like Sean Edwards has just gone to Wales because no one was in a position to speak to him properly because they don't know who the manager's going to be, because they don't know who the CEO is, because they don't know who the CEO is going to appoint them, and etc. etc. That's why it's important that you at least have competent administrators. You know, and, you know, and, and, and they're not, you, they're joking, they're not like FIFA, they're not corrupt. But actually, incompetence sometimes has a, a similar effect. So, you know, at the end of the day, you've got to get that sorted out. You know, when, you, it comes at you, when you're looking and pointing at the FA as a model of you know, uh, corporate governance, you're in trouble, really, aren't you? <laughs> yes, sir. Um, there's a report in the papers about bringing in the Frenchman to run the RFP. A Frenchman? Yeah, the guy who put the dome together. It's in the paper today. Marcel, I wondered how, Marcel, I wondered how you felt. That genuinely is in the paper today about the bringing in Frenchman to replace Thomas at the RFP. I thought that would make it better for you, wouldn't it, Brian? <laughs> Look, I... <coughs> It, it doesn't matter to me. They've got, as long as they're competent, I don't, I don't mind. Actually, you know, I really don't mind. It, like, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a business role. It's a business role. Quite capable of understanding that. No problem. I don't have a problem with that. Because, but, but please appoint somebody because at the moment, you know, it, it's, having a lot, it's, it's, it's causing trouble. Yes, sir. Sorry. First of all, thank you very much for the water campaign. It saved us a lot of money. Secondly, uh, you waged a small campaign as to the application of the law as it applied to the game for all infringements, mainly the put-ins and the throw-ins. Yeah. If we did that, then the game would be static. But therefore, we have to rely on the judgment of the referee, and therefore, when the referee has made the judgment, I think they should be respected. And I have the war button sending off in my mind. Uh, it's a bit technical, so we'll, we'll go into it. But um, for those of you who aren't intrinsically interested in rugby, let's, let's make it a slightly wider point about referees. Um, yes, in, you do have to respect referees. And I've said that time after time. I don't understand in football. The, the, I've spoken to several referees, society, uh, London Society of Football Referees, etc. And I always say this. Um, I, I only partly blame you a little bit because... You do have the power, actually, to stop this. However, I do know that in football circles, if you were the referee who started to card people yellow, yellow, red, 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 and you were trying to stamp out people surrounding you, abusing you, um, you know, diving, etc., etc., that you would never get picked again, and that's your problem. The powers are there in football to deal with it. If, if you wanted to, it would be a bloodbath. But it, it's in everyone's interest in football, you see, to blame referees because managers can blame them instead of blaming their strikers or their defenders because they can pick on the one thing that happened later on. In fact, when they've missed three or four opportunities, it's much easier to do that rather than 
where the responsibility is, or for the fact that they didn't make the substitutions at the right time, or they didn't get the tactics right. Um, with you know, rugby's got to rely on referees because it's a game which requires interpretation, and I understand that. However, the referee is always right, allows you um, to make mistakes, not to be bloody stupid, in my opinion. Um, and the big problem with scrimmages is they will not listen to the cause and effect as to why things are going wrong. I worked out that I'd be, I was probably in about 100,000 scrums. Jason Leonard and Phil Vickery between them, probably 150 each. So between us, that's 400,000 scrums. And yet none of us has had a phone call ever from anybody saying, would you sit on a body to look at the front rows to, 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 to talk to referees? Now that to me seems to be insane, particularly because it's an opaque area where you can't necessarily see what's going on and you have to have played there. And I used to, one of the reasons I did my refereeing qualification was I was sick of referees saying to me, um, yeah, and how many scrums have you refereed? And I'd say, well, quite a lot when I played, but not supposed to have done. But, uh, <laughs> I said, uh, I said, but, um, but I said, uh, that, what, what are you talking about? Oh, if you haven't refereed, how can you tell us about? I said, you know, but I know what's going on. I said, but I said, well, I tell you what, we'll take that out of a rugby context. I said, my, I'm a big uh, MotoGP fan. I said it'd be like Valentino Rossi going to a race marshal and saying, look, the problem on this corner and the reason we're all crashing or going is because you're sending us down a line like this. And the race marshal turning round to Valentino Rossi saying, how many times have you been a marshal, Valentino? <laughs> I mean, and when you put it in a different context, it's so utterly stupid, that argument. But they do use it. And I've had that time and time again. You don't know what you're talking about because you haven't refereed a scrum. Well, so I have that. And, and they, there are right to be some referees and say, oh, we've noticed a change in your commentary being more conciliatory towards referees. I said, there isn't one at all. I said, it's your perception. I said, and what the course has done and what the Times of Referee has done is actually make me more certain that when you say, oh, you can't see that as a referee, I know you bloody can. Because, and, and, and the front row things are just a, um, an example to me of really bad administration. Not asking people who have actually done it and, 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 and at least give an opinion. And the problem they've got, very quickly, because people get bothered, is that they now, because they introduced this crouch, touch, pause, and engage thing as a way for doing things, they now believe that a lot of the subsequent problems in the scrum are as a result of that sequence and the way it's called, or the manner in which it's called, or how quick or how slow. <coughs> Nothing to do with that at all. But they won't believe that, and so they keep messing around with that phase. And of course, they keep having scrums that don't go right. And when you tell them things, I've actually been now to six um, societies, uh, referee societies, football, rugby ones, and what I do when I go there is I get them on stage and I say, right, I want you to do this and this and this, and they do it, and then I say to them, now do you understand what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. Is it what I'm saying right? Yes. Why did I have to come up to fucking Nottingham to tell you this, <laughs> get you on stage before you believe me, particularly when you've never played there, and I have. You know, I, and, and, and so it's, it's difficult. And one of the problems with football and with all sports now is because of the standards of fitness that you have to get, you're having to specialise earlier and earlier and earlier. Referees are now having to decide in, in lots of sports whether they are referees by the time they're mid-20s because they've got a, a backstop of, say, 45 and they've got to make their way up the ladder, etc. So they're not able to get the amount of time in unless they give up straight away, so they're necessarily not going to have much game time. 
even at a, a lower level, because they've not been they've not been doing that, which is a, a difficulty. And, and just as a final point, one of the I went, when I was on the referees course, it was a there was a stark difference between a lot of people who came and had a set of laws with them, and then looked at the game. And I said that's the wrong. I said to me that's the wrong way to it. look at the game and then see where the laws might be. Say why are you looking over there? Well, law so and so says this. I say well, nothing's going to happen there. So why? Well, we say, they won't cheat there because they won't get an advantage. They'll cheat if they're going to do it. It'll be there because that's you know. They say oh well, what about this one? So it doesn't matter. Do you ignore it. You know, just whatever. Unless it's really really blatant. Just you know, it doesn't matter. And it'll happen once every you know God knows how long. You know. But these are the ones. <laughs> And so it's just, it's a, it was, a, it was a, an insight into the different ways in which people think. And the, the referees who are good, both football and rugby, and are, are, the, are the people who look at the game and then the rules or laws, rather than sitting out with a framework and saying, that's that, that's that, that's that, that's that. Because those are too often the people who will, who will demonstrate that they know that's that, that's that. At some point, they're going to they're make that decision because they know it. And you're going to find out that they know it. The best piece of refereeing advice about a front row I ever got, when I was at Nottingham, a, a little referee ran on, he was about five foot four, and he pulled the front row, so he said, right, it's all right. He said, uh, you, just pay attention, he said, right, you can tell by the size of me, he said, I've never played in the front row. He said, in fact, he used to be a winger. And I know, he, said, he said, I don't really know much about front row play, he said, but he said, you see that man sitting in the stand over there? Uh, yeah, he, well, he's an assessor, he said. And the thing is, if I have problems in the scrum and I don't do anything for each one, make a decision, then I'm going to get across. So I'll tell you what I'm going to do, lads. He said, I'm going to guess. <laughs> and then he said, and he said, but, he said, don't come off the field and tell me that I didn't tell you before I started that I didn't know what I was doing, all right? <laughs> so nothing happened because people were petrified, didn't know what he was going to do. So everyone put it clean, so, you know. <laughs> And as you effectively guess anyway, they might as well do that, right? So, no. Well, thank you. Uh, yes, sir, you've been waiting a while, sorry. I, I enjoyed your talk, thanks very much, first of all. Um, it's just a basic point, and England might be needing a new coach fairly soon. I'm, I'm a Scotsman, as you can probably tell, and we've got an Englishman, Andy Robinson, who I think is doing a really good job in Scotland with limited playing resources, if I can put it that way. Um, when you responded to that question about the Frenchman getting involved, you said it's a business role, so we just want the best person. Can, can I infer from that that if it's a coaching role, that your view would be different? I talk to a lot of people, English people, and I say we need a new coach, and they, and they say, well, we want it to be an Englishman. It can't be Nick okay. Mallet. It's got. What, okay. What's your take on it? I don't, look, it would be it would be preferable for it to be indigenous, whatever country, and i tell you why, because that proves that your coaching setup is good enough to produce a raft of candidates and some that are good enough to take a national team on. If, if, you, if you're having to automatically look abroad, then there's something wrong with your coaching structure, isn't there? Or something wrong with your managerial structure. So that's why it's preferable if it's that. Not least because if, you know, at the end of the day, uh, you, you know, you would want, it, you would have to get over the fact that when you play other teams, if you have a coach who is a Kiwi or, and you're playing New Zealand or you're, you know, then it doesn't sound right giving a team talk. Just, just, you know, you will get to accept it, but um, you know, it, you've always, always got that factor. So it would be better, obviously. At the end of the day, if there are no candidates, then you have to look abroad. And I'm not in favour of appointing people 
on nationality if they're not good enough. And England's problem actually came, and the, the Bloodgate saga um, had casualties, not just for Quinns, but actually the, the person who had the coaching experience and should have taken the role was probably Dean Richards because he'd won things as a player, as a lion. Uh, he'd won the Heineken Cup th uh, and European Cup two or three times at Leicester, etc., etc. He'd taken Quinns from the second division to second in the first division with not a lot of money. You know, and he'd obviously... Jake White said to me, Jake White was the 2007 South African coach, he said to me that it doesn't matter what you call the head person, whether he's a manager or a coach, 85% of his job and therefore everything to do with it was about selection because he said and he's right that if you get the right group of players with average coaches you'll do better than the wrong group of players with good coaches because you can't effectively you know you can't do that so the Andy Robinson the reason Andy Robinson has been successful uh, he was in Edinburgh and, and Scotland is that when he was with England because he had such a playing pool when he had a problem he thought that by picking someone else you would solve that problem and a lot of the problems were constitutional <coughs> and down to other bits and technical aspects that weren't going to be solved by just picking someone else and therefore if you carry on picking people and you in any walk of life you don't even have to look at what the company is if you see a company or what sector it's in or how old it is if you see a company that has a large turnover of staff really large you know there's something not right because good people should stay at good companies you know, if you have a high degree of turnover, it's the same with selection. If you think about it, if you set out to pick your 11 or 15 best players and you have to change three or four or five for the next game, that means you've made four or five mistakes. If you pick another four, that's another four, so that's nine mistakes, in two, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, and Andy, Andy's problem was that he tried to solve it that way. When he came to Edinburgh and he came to Scotland and he didn't have the luxury of saying, I'll just pick someone else, I'll have to work with what I've got, he showed that he has actually a good coach. I've never said he was a bad coach. He was a 2003 uh, England World Cup winning forwards coach. His problem has been selection. Brian Ashton's problem to a lesser extent was selection. Martin Johnson's larger problems are for, from selection. If you look at why, God knows why, this insane to everyone else's loyalty to Steve Borthwick, Eagle Piggle, was a... You know, I, I couldn't understand this, and yet he kept persisting on doing it. But when Steve was injured, all of a sudden, when he was fit again, he didn't even feature in the Saxon squad, so he's not in the top 60. So he goes from being, I will, is an irremovable object, which I have great faith in, complete faith, and to nothing. Now, and, and the same with, you know, Shantaine Harpe, I'll keep on playing him, keep on playing him. Plays his best game in the World Cup, probably, two or two tries, and he's not picked. So we end up playing with a centre. Uh, we end up playing with a fly-off at centre, which hadn't been done before. You know. So that's the problem for me. The person in charge is a selector. And that's what Clive Woodward was good at. He built the thing. And people have very um, odd views about Clive. I know, I no particular remit for him. I didn't play under him or whatever. I don't know him that well. Um, but they keep saying things like, a, they're very emotional about him. His detractors... Um, say things like, oh, we didn't do much. He, he wasn't a coach, he didn't do anything. And so apart from organise the whole structure, so he picked all the coaches who then were given the time and the space to coach and the players, etc., etc., apart from that. Which is a really easy job because to the extent that everyone does it all the time in every other organisation, don't they? And you can see, you know, what is on paper easy to describe in business and in teams, it's very difficult to do. 
you know, to, 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 to pick a talented group of, of, of coaches and say, hands off, you get on with that, and players and so on, not easy to do at all. And he's done that. What I find also difficult about the detractors of Clive, Clive Woodward, and you've got to take his, his thing in the round, is that they say, well, all right, he did that with 2003, but the 2005 Lions series was a disaster, which he privately will admit. But what you can't do is use that argument reverse ways, because people are saying about Martin, well, the fact is he's gone through the experience, he's failed, and it was miserable, but therefore he learned such a lot, so you've got to give him another chance because he will have had that lesson. Well, if you use that reasoning, then you, Clive has not only had his lesson in 2005, but he's also won a World Cup, so he's doubly qualified on that reasoning, if, you, if you're actually consistent. But the problem is, when you start talking about Clive, people become irrational, completely irrational, because he was a very strong character, and the people in the RFU don't like him, because he basically told him to fuck off. And he said, you know, you are not coming near the team, you're not interfering in this, this, that. And they say, well, he spent a lot of money, and he did spend a lot of money, but then he won a World Cup, so how much is that, is that worth? Um, that's the uh, so the nationality is a, is a, is a side <coughs> thing to me. Um, more importantly, it's more important. I think more worrying actually is the fact that if you had to look at English candidates for it, you'd be down to one or two names, which should which which shouldn't be right. Yes, sir. So just a very quick No, what, no, that's not a fun that's not a function of the stop clock, though, is it? That, I mean, again, the stop clock is inert. I mean, it just tells you the time. It doesn't actually do anything. No, you've never, you've never had. I tell you what is a problem. The problem to solve your problem is this: is I don't understand in rugby why, when it's a mall, referees are suddenly shouting, "Get rid of it! Five seconds! Do it now!" When it comes to a rook, it can just stay there and stay there, and the scrum half will go and do his nails, and he'll. <laughs> and he'll look round, he'll say, you get there, you get there, I'll chat with fly off, and, near, you know, and he just stays there. I don't understand why there's the incongruity there. You know, if you want to get the ball out, then that, that's the way to solve it, to stop him doing that, rather than, than the stop thing. I'm sorry, this... this um, without God, bod God. <laughs> well, they're going to have to learn, fairly shortly, to do without him completely, aren't they? Because... No, he's going to go. Um, I th one thing that I, he will look back on his career, I'm sure, and he's done so amazing. He's one of the best centres ever to play, so he's got that. But he, he will, I tell you what, he will look at Ireland's record in the World Cup and think, actually, we didn't do ourselves anywhere near justice. You know, we just didn't, just didn't perform. This time was a bit better uh, than, than, than 2007, which was, which was terrible. And, I, and then you are, but it's very difficult when you talk about Brian because you know he's such a good player. But you do have to say, if you've been in charge, are you saying you've got no responsibility at all for the, for these performances? Because that surely can't be right, can it? You can't have the, the good without the bad. So they'll look. They'll, they'll learn to live. What what is what is better for for, for Irish rugby is that is actually. They are. They've got a, a consistent. They seem to be getting a consistent production line of decent players, whereas before it was very sporadic. So they may get another one, but they actually, I, I, only one team can win anything at one time. And the, the, you know well, the problem is, 
that when you have good players, if if there comes a generation in a particular um, in a particular team that is just exceptional, then that's that that's a, that's an accident. So you know, England will not produce world-beating teams every time, and nor should New Zealand if if other teams were as diligent as they were. But with England, what they shouldn't be with their resources is a side which is not at least sort of semi-finalist. So, so Ireland are in a different position because they're a bit more reliant on that, but they're, 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 they're better organised, so they've got, they've got a much better chance. Well. Do you think it's right that um, governments, uh, not governments, organising bodies, um, the, t the teams and stuff are banning uh, players um, and sports people in general from using Twitter and social networking? Well, again, I mean, Twitter is, is essentially a neutral medium because it's what you make of it. In, in the book, um, The More Thoughts of Chiamo, there's about 12,000 words on my Twitter experience, which, in the end of the day, I came off Twitter because um, one was people were just the abuse was when I, the difficult the, the point is this you know if I'd said on TV you know if I'd got abhorrent right wing racist Nazi unreasonable sectarian xenophobic bigoted views then you could understand people saying you know and yeah, when I give my opinion on a game of rugby which I genuinely try to give as fairly as I can then I don't see why, you know, there's only so many times you can be called a cunt that, you know, there's only so many <laughs> that, I, that I want to be. And the difficulty I say to people is this, just be, there's two things. One, don't believe that when you watch the TV, as I say, an Ireland fan or a Welsh fan, that you start from a position of neutrality when you're looking at decisions. You don't. You start from there, and English or your opponent's supporters will start from a viewpoint there. And, you know, research has shown that it is perfectly possible for two people to see something and honestly give a divergent opinion on what's happened and why. And the fact is that you start there, they start there, and I try to start in the middle. For me to agree with you, I'd have to be over there, which would be too, too away from them. So, you know, actually, you don't start from a different neutral, um, nor when you, before you sit down do you have people saying to you, remember, this is a BBC, which they do to me, um, <laughs> You know, and so, and so you don't start that. And actually, at the end of the day, you can disagree with me, but I don't expect necessarily. It doesn't to me. If it does come with a job, I want a lot more money. Um, that to you know, to, for these vile stuff to come on. You know, stuff like um, who else would like to stab Brian Moore in the eyes, which was from a woman. So, well, you know, where does this come from? Where and 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 the one thing that upset me most because I said, look. My, one of my daughters uh, lives with a mum, I see her quite a lot, but I can't control where she is on social media. Um, you know, she's nine now, she'll be getting older. I can't stop her looking on Twitter, stuff like that. She came in, um, and I didn't hear her come into the room, actually. So I didn't get a chance to cover the screen up when I was looking, and she saw some of the comments. And um, the next... The next morning, I found on the uh, kitchen table, which was... Well, it sent me a lot actually. Was a little note from her saying, um, "My daddy's Brian Moore. Um, some people don't like him because um, he says what he thinks, but I think he's a lovely dad." Now, she was obviously upset about that. Why should she have to be 
like that, subject to that, just because I give an opinion on rugby. I mean, it's not, you know, it's a subjective matter anyway. But the level, I tell you, it's a really... Ben Cliss, who was the um, sports editor of the, uh, of the Telegraph, actually summed this up and, uh, as well as anyone. Because he said, actually, if you think about it, it's a convergence of two things. One, the implausibly anonymous, and two, the very intimate in this sense. A lot of the tweets that come on are the equivalent of someone shouting at a pub in, the t- uh, in the, a TV in a pub, or in the front room, or with a mates. Yet, whereas normally that would just disappear into the ether and never be heard again, as you know, anything that's in written form has much more substance, much more substance, and it is delivered right to the person that you're talking about in the same way that they might get messages from the friends, you know, uh, we're meeting at so-and-so or whatever. And so uh, on the one hand, it's completely anonymous. On the other hand, it's intensely personal because it goes right to where you want to do it. When my wife and I actually, you challenge a few people on this, people have said things like, oh, I'm sorry, I, um, I didn't think anyone read this. Or they said, I, I didn't think you'd see it. I said, well, look at my fucking tweet on it. Yeah, of course I'll see it. <laughs> you know? And they, so they say things like this. And, and, and they say, oh, look, I was drunk. Oh, so that makes it all right. You know, so, but, so that's the problem. You, uh, and that's the problem for people who use it as well. You know, people will do things. The reason freedom of speech goes... So I got into trouble because my sense of humour is completely sick. Um, you know, I'm a victim of, of, of you know, of, uh, of paedophilia. And I, 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 you know, I made, I made this joke. I said, you know, the problem with paedophilia is you have to go to bed really early. Um, now, you know, I thought it was funny because of now, now, not everyone would, but the fact is, if you, th- that's where Twitter is really dangerous. That another thing <coughs> for, me, for me. I could make that comment and it will go around. See, I believe it is possible to separate the comedic from the derogatory. I do believe it's possible to say something with an ultimate funeral if it's inventive enough and not disparage the subject, the person, whatever. Now, it's a very fine line, it's a very technical argument, which you can't do in 140 characters, actually. So you can't have this debate with people, and they just go, you know, I got into, um, I retweeted a joke from uh, another journalist, which was, again, it was, a, it was, it was this, it was a, uh, it was someone who is going to manage uh, um, a Gary Glitter. He's thinking to manage Aston Villa because Bent, um, someone, someone. It was, it was, it was, a, it was a silly joke, right? If you look under, if you type up Brian Moore, a vile homophobic joke on the internet, an article will come up from a Lindsay England from a Justin campaign, saying that this is a vile homophobic joke. It's not about homophobia. It's not about homosexuality at all, actually. You know. Um, and you will see in the comments, if you bother to read that far, that the people who are, who are gay people come in and say, listen, this is a joke. It's not even about gay people. You know, gay, so, so, but the problem is, that's there forever with me. That was from a retweet, which actually was retweeted by five other, for want of a better word, well-known people. And yet this happened to come up because this person you know, picked it up. So that's now on the internet. You know, the fact that I you know, appeared on stage to raise money um, for Survivors UK, which is uh, uh, one of very few charities for male victims of rape and sexual abuse, you know, was, was another matter. 
because I obviously am homophobic, because that's why I would do that. You know, um, but, so you've got these problems. What players have to understand is that lazy journalism, and quite a lot of journalism, people actually, people follow you, they, they follow tweets, and you, you will see now more and more and more copy just out of a tweet, won't you? All the time, because it's become a source of news, because, the re and the reason they do this is because they know if they get a player at a press conference, they're not, they'll either be told they can't answer this question, or they won't answer it, or they've been schooled and you, but on Twitter they become unguarded, um, you know, and they become, so Elliot Sapolo was a Samoan centre, you know, he had a legitimate gripe in the World Cup that his team, Samoa, were given uh, four, game, four days rest between games and the, and the tier one nations weren't. You know, it was a legitimate, legitimate gripe, but then when he likened it to the Holocaust and genocide, you have to say, actually, if you knew anything about the Holocaust, you really wouldn't ever apply a game of rugby to that. Because, you know, so you've, you've got these sort of things. The, the, last, the last one, because he was given Sapolu, who was supposedly a trained lawyer, but I don't understand how he fucking can be, but he, he was a real lawyer, who, who then said he'd been given a six-month suspended sentence by the IRB saying, don't do this again, you know, etc., etc. He then goes on Twitter later on when he's got back, says to one of his followers, you know, what they did to me by employment law was illegal. Well, so you're accusing someone who's giving you a suspended sentence of illegality in sentencing you. First of all, Elliot, you weren't playing under employment law, you halfwit. You were playing under contractual law, so you don't understand that. But secondly, when he went on and then said, but it's a fair price for freedom of speech. After all, Mandela got 21 years. Now... <laughs> Now, Sitter Elliot, I've, I've met President Mandela, and you're no President Mandela, I tell you. Um, right? And by the way, he got life, and he served 27 years, so get your facts right as well. You know, but, so this is, this is a problem, and he's got into trouble for that, and he'll be, you know, I was saying that the law you ought to be bothered about is your contract with your club, because they're going to be deprived of you playing, because you can't stop this insanity in tweeting. You, it would be... <coughs> Freedom of speech. Do many people, do many sportsmen say anything that you would want to listen to? <laughs> Therefore, they're not exercising freedom of speech in all areas or whatever. It, it, it comes down to this. If, if you accept a contract that says you're not allowed to do this and you get a lot of money for it, then you're not allowed to do it or don't sign the contract. So, you know, if, if clubs want to... The, you can make all the arguments you like about it should be, everyone should have the right to do this, everyone should have the right, but actually, for the brief time they're in your team and you want them not to be involved in controversy and you're paying them, actually, the better way is, is it not to say you can't do this. Sorry, you may, you know, because after all, are you really going to miss it? What does it add to the fullness of your, my life? You know, bits and pieces. I'll tell you why I used to like it, it's because now I don't work in an office and I, I didn't realise that until I had to work in the shed on my own, that actually, you know, officers are really valuable just for social and human interaction, not, you know, not intrigue and trysts and anything like that, just to talk to other people. So with more people working from home and people on the road and, you know, travelling, you know, people use that, use Twitter as, a, as, a, as an office banter. And that's what I used to do. But then again, you know, the consequences for me if someone picked a line up and then started writing to the BBC line, you know, the, the one that actually, I can't take you into all the circumstances, uh, but you can buy it, it's in the book. But uh, it's, it's that, 
is the, the letter, you know, the tweets that I really got into that, you know, threatened my job at the BBC and et cetera, et cetera, people having campaigns and, and so on. Well, then the consequences for me are not the same as, as maybe for you, or uh, et cetera. You, I tell you what you need. You either need to be so wealthy and so successful you can say anything you like and you don't care, um, or anonymous. Um, if you're in the middle or whatever, then you may, may have problems. So freedom of speech, you can say what you like. Do you have to say it on Twitter? Do you, I mean, do you have to say it on Twitter? You know, I know why it's, look, I, I really like Twitter. I just found that my personality, another thing for me is this, I'm really bad, and I've said, when someone says something, because of the person I am, and the way I was trained as a lawyer, you know, I would go back to them and say, that's not right because of this, isn't this? They come back that with an irrational point. I'd make another rational point, then make another one. And I'd spend, and, I, and you know, I used to think, that's five hours of my life, I'll never get back now. <laughs> why did you, and you, 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 you can see as you're doing it, you say, why are you doing this? He's not going to bloody listen. If he, if he was going to listen, he wouldn't have called you a twat, well, you know, before he started. So, so he's not going to listen to reason. I tried to take someone to task for using the word literally. You know, I said, um, I, it was literally unwatchable. I said, well, how do you know what it was like if it was literally unwatchable then? <laughs> I said, it wasn't literally unwatchable, was it? It was watchable and you didn't like it. Oh, you, you, you know, and so it's a little... <laughs> and then I'm, th you know, halfway into that, I'm thinking, what are you doing? I just want... But, and, so again, that is just try not, try not to get me into insane arguments, which I won't back down from because, you know, of insecurities and, and all this sort of thing with people who don't care anyway. <laughs> yes, sir. Well, I think, yeah, I, I hear that. Well, what you've, what you've got is uh, two things there. I mean, there is a rugby version of this. It's called the School of Hard Knocks, which Scott Quinnell, uh, and unfortunately Austin Healy, uh, is involved with. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, it, but it's, I tell you what it is, it's not just, it's, it's, it's several folds. It, it doesn't have to be rugby. The fact is, it could be any sport or even any... Um, event, hobby or whatever that requires you, first of all, to get the people away from the people they associate with, you know, on the estates who want to lead them in a, a direction that's, that's bad so they get out of that and they make new friends and understand that there's another because this was, when I was at school I lived on between a council estate, another council estate I'm not proud of this, but when I was sort of 13, 14, before I'd really started playing sport properly, and used to knock about with people from the estate, several of whom, you know, ended up inside fairly quickly, you know, I used to mess around and, and you know, nicking sweets from the Macintosh factories, technically Berkeley, actually, but, you know, so stuff like that, which was seen as, you know, a bit of fun, actually would have gone on and on, and it developed into bigger things. The fact is I was taken out of that environment because I was training and I was going playing sport and I was doing these. And so I made other friends that lived a different way and of course in sport to be successful or in anything, in any sort of activity, you know, you have to have dedication, you have to have application, you have to listen, you, know, you have to do things. And that was what the group I had knocked around with didn't have, you know, we just left to their own devices. You know, they didn't have things to do. They went and found things to do. The things that they found to do, 
you know, occasionally got them a bit of money or got them this or got them that. And therefore, if they don't have anything to take them away from that, of course they're going to carry on doing that. I'm not a bleeding heart liberal that doesn't, you know, believes it's society's fault, etc., etc. But, you know, I do believe that programmes like sport, one of the reasons I'm passionate about spending on sport is that I haven't got the figures with me, but the uh, Consumer Council for Recreation for Sport swear that it's backed up by actuaries and so on, that for every pound you spend on sport, you generate seven, and that's not including the money you save from the government budgets on health, you know, getting fat people to walk to bus stops and, um, and things like that, you know, and, and, and on the antisocial uh, and, and stuff like that. It's one of, yeah, it's, it's one of. Yeah, it's, it's one of, and i tell you the good thing about, the good thing about rugby, and I would say this, wouldn't I? It could be the same in football, but for different reasons not. The reason you don't talk back to referees is that, is this, it's two reasons. Is one, the penalties are there, but two, is if I, when I played, if I said something, 14 people might agree with me that the referee had made a wrong decision. No one would ever say, and you were right to tell him that, weren't you? You know, they would simply say, and is he going to change his mind? Have you made it any better? Why don't you shut up? So peer group pressure is probably the most effective behaviour modifier of all. And if you've got that, you know, then you can, you can do a lot of things. That can come from any sport. Rugby is, is, a, is a good example, I think, but so, so, so are other ones. And I've always tried to maintain it. I've always said what should happen in government is the Treasury should be made to do a calculation, a once and for all one, that says, you know, when we spend X million on that, we actually save that, that and that. So that spend is actually a lot less because we've saved money there. So when you come to government departments arguing about how much we should have, you know, and some government departments don't have that knock-on benefit on other budgets, sports budget can't be cut pro rata, it should be said that this is weighted. And so, you know, it will always get its fair share because it contributes in other ways. Yes, sir. Um, the 1991 World Cup final, did you actually make a decision to change tactics? Yes. And we were wrong. Um, and uh, thank you for bringing that up. I, um, <laughs> I only had 12 years therapy for that. Uh, so <laughs> no, it was, you know, we shouldn't have done it. Um, we, we made wrong assumptions and, 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 you know, we paid the price. And, but you see, that's what... That, that, that is what is great about sport to, to me. You know, if you're a, a musician or whatever, there's always another concert you can play. People generally turn up and just want you to play and love you anyway, because they've paid to play. You know, in sport, you lose. I can't ever get that, you know, I, you only get one chance in life to be the best in the world, and, you know, we blow ours. And I've had to live with, you know, live with that, and it's, it's, it's deeply upsetting, so thank you for reminding me. But, you know, <laughs> But, but that, is, that is those the margins and that's why to me the drama is, is so great because you can see all that there. One of the things that's hacked me off, um, you know, and it's got better I think with, with BB, you know, the BBC Sports Personality Programme is the only one of its kind in the world. You know, a three hour or two hour live broadcast, you know, with all those sports people there. It's a very ambitious project anyway and they, and they, do, it, they do it very well. However, the one criticism, you know, I've had is to me I've always said in a year's sport where, where you always get complaints that from other sports that they didn't get enough time, 
you have actually diverted time having idiot celebrities on there and you, or, or in order to popularise in some way this. And I said, you don't need this because sport itself has enough drama, you know, has enough heroes and villains and enough stories without you having to interject people like James Corden you know, and things like that. Because, and also, I say, you know, sport in the BBC gets, gets, gets a lower um, profile than light entertainment, you know, whose stars are paid an awful lot more for the one time of the year when sport can be right at the forefront and have its own people celebrate its own way. I said, when you come to the BAFTAs, they don't get sports people to come on habitually and take the piss out of actors, do they? said, you know, and if actors don't play along because actually they don't like it, you know, he said, you know, for the one time, there is enough in sport without that sort of cheapening of it to me. Um, you can get it all there w without doing that. So every time, I mean, two years ago when they were advocating and they had the celebrity advocates for the, for the uh, sports people of the year, the one that, you know, was for, um, was for Jensen Button gave this stunning piece of insight when he said, you know, the reason you should vote for Jensen is he really deserves it. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I never thought of that. You know, uh, and so, and one said the reason you should vote for Ryan Giggs is because when he goes to work, he doesn't go to work, he goes to Giggsland, which is a, you know, which is a, I said, what on earth are you talking about? <laughs> you know, um, that's, but the, you know, the, the sport itself, where were we? I can't remember what you said now. <laughs> um, anyone else? I'll be finished now. Just one more. Well, maybe one or two more? One, two more. Yes. Just to change the mood slightly, what's Brian Moore's finest star? <laughs> uh, <laughs> it'd be bloody sad if it was, wouldn't it? Uh, uh, <laughs> my performance, not your, but you're not here, don't you? <laughs> um, Tell you, I'll give you an answer which um, will disappoint many, but for me, it, I've spent such a long time, uh, for various reasons, due to childhood bits and pieces and trauma. Yeah. When I say that my aim is to um, is to is to is to is to be happy or to be content. That sounds such a pathetic, woolly, useless sort of aim that to most people they would say that's so obtuse I don't even know what you're talking about. But uh, I've, I've had one of the when I hear people described as or certainly describing themselves as driven I automatically now want to say, why are you driven? Because what I've now come to understand is there's a difference between highly ambitious, dedicated, hardworking, and driven. Because by its very nature, the description driven has a connotation of non-consent, doesn't it? You're actually driven to do things. The problem with driven people is they're never happy. They might achieve extraordinary things, but I bet you when, you, when they get there, 
they're not able to see, that's enough. I'm really, I'm happy now, you know, I'll be content, I'll, you know. There'll be something else to do because they've found that what they thought, playing for your country, doing that, would solve a lot of things, doesn't because then there's another box to tick and there's another box to tick and you can say, well, well, you've done that, but you haven't done that. And you do that and then you think, well, so you, so example, you say, well, you, when you're cat, then, well, you, you've not got more than one, so you get more than one. You haven't won a grand slam, so you win a grand slam, you haven't won this. So you can always, and the problem is you tick these boxes off thinking the next one, I've always thought the next one will be this. And I also call it, and the difficulty, the difficulty I, I, I struggled with was coming, the sporting metaphors which work in the sense just of sport, like don't give up, never quit, second is nowhere, you know, you can't live your life like that because it's never going to be the same. You know, you, there are always losers in life, you know, there's always someone who's richer, more attractive, more successful, whatever those mean. You, know, you can't tick every box and you've got to find an accommodation at some point to understand where you are and try and live in the moment because you're always thinking about the next thing. And I have made bad decisions in my life for the sort of grass is greener syndrome by, by, by not understanding what I had at the time and looking over a metaphorical fence and saying, well, that looks a bit more exciting and interesting, and then jump over, leaving all that behind with all the chaos and damage that it caused, and then finding when you get to that situation, that's no better. Or it's a little bit better, but it's not everything, and the next one will be better. So I hope my finest hour hasn't happened, and I hope I get to a point where... You know, I'm able to sit back and think, actually, I'm, I'm content with that, and, and, I'm content with the successes and the failures, and I'm not <coughs> going to dwell over much or excessively on the failures. One of the things that I worried about Johnny Wilkinson, and I think he's, I think he's finally come to terms with this, hopefully, is whenever I used to hear Johnny talking about his amazing successes, you know, he would simply start describing what he'd done wrong. I don't think about that, I just think about the fact that I didn't do that, didn't do that, and I said, you know, at the end of the day, please don't get to the end of your career and look back and the first thing that jumps out of you is the failures, because there's still all these. And by the way, actually, you know, the, the, the problem with driven people, if you write all these things down, they look impressive, but then I wouldn't necessarily look at that list of things and say, that's really good, that's really good. I'd say, well, there, why isn't that one on there? Why isn't that one? Why isn't that one? So I hope that I, I get to a situation where whatever I do, I do do. You know, I do as well as I can, and that I accept that that's that that's, that, that in, in the end is good enough. I'm not sure it will get there totally, but at least I, I now have a, an understanding that that might be a, a sensible way to go forward. Do you mind if we end there, Brian? No, I don't mind. Um, so, before we formally thank Brian, um, there's, you're able to buy copies of his books just outside for eighteen ninety nine, um, and you can get them signed. I don't by get eighteen ninety nine by the way. I just have to tell you. And you can get them signed as well by Brian. Um, and after we say thank you one more time, can you please remain seated and allow him to get out quickly so he can sign and get on home? So, Brian, um, you've been entertaining and honest. Um, on behalf of the audience here in the LSE community, I uh, would like to say thank you for coming down and thank giving you. us your time. So, thank you.